0: Today we're going to look at what I believe creates um, the intimacy and the, um, the authenticity that the world is actually looking for, but that we as a church often, uh, we don't often accomplish this. And I, I've said it before, but I'll say it again. I actually believe that Christians are the least vulnerable people on the planet. And I think it's because we've created a culture that, that, it, that chases religion far more than it chases the gospel. That we have this kind of obsessive um, desire to cross our T's and dot our I's and get our doctrine right. And we're more concerned often about presenting to the world the ideal that we can't live uh, rather than the Jesus that's actually saved us and met us in our brokenness, and and I want to we're going to look at First John, um, chapter one, verses five through ten. And and the argument that I'm going to make today is that confession, real confession, the confession of our brokenness before God and before one another, is actually what produces fellowship, real fellowship, meaningful fellowship. Let me just um, share a story about man. It was like 2011. I had a dear friend um, die of cancer. I actually lost two friends to cancer in two years, and they were both the same age. But my friend Steve uh, was a guy that I didn't connect with very well. My wife's best friend um, uh, was married to him, and so I, you know, he had to tolerate me because. His wife was best friends with my wife. Um, and he always seemed uh, kind of, he kind of held me at arm's distance because he, was, he, he, he wasn't a believer. Uh, he was a really respected school teacher in, in Portland, fifth grade, um, actually at Chapman Elementary. Super smart, really witty, uh, uh, fiercely protective of his family um, and leery of people he didn't know. Slow to trust. Well, Steve got lymphoma and uh, went through a couple years of chemo, it was scary, we thought he was through it, but then it came back with a vengeance and uh, found out that he literally had a few months to live. This is when Steve began to become friends with me because as he was recognizing that everything in his life that mattered, everything that he loved, his wife, his girls, his job, uh, he loved to surf, he loved to play soccer, all, or football. Um, he, <laughs> I went to my first Timbers game last night. What a weird thing. I was, in, I was on the Timbers Army side, and I'm like, I just want to sit down. Why do I have to stand? And this is awkward. Talk about real fellowship. Uh, every time, they scored multiple goals last night. Every time they score a goal, if you're in the Timbers' arm, nobody does this anywhere else in the rest of the stadium, but on that end, they immediately turn to you and they demand that you high five them. So I'm just like straight, I'm like, I don't even know what's happening and I'm like, I look over and this guy's just standing there like this. Like, and he was not backing down, I'm like, and then I turn around and it was like another guy at me, like it was like every direction, I'm like, it's too much. Like I said, Christians are not vulnerable. (laughs) But as Steve got really sick, he began to reach out to me. And one of the things that he reached out to me is because he was terrified of death. And he was obsessed with figuring out how he could beat it. In fact, up till a week before he died, he was still trying to figure out how to beat it. And I remember it was three days before he died I went and sat with him in the afternoon, and he had been asking me about faith. He grew up actually pretty devout Catholic, and even had thought about going into the priesthood, um, but kind of had a, a, a loss of faith and then pursued education instead. But now he was like, "This thing is real. I can't even speak it out, but it's real, and it's going to happen." And he started reaching out to me I started meeting with him daily but this is three days before he dies and he finally confesses to me how afraid he is and it was in that moment of confession that there was a vulnerability and there was an immediate heart connection between him and I and I remember looking at him and weeping with him because I felt I felt his fear for him. He let me into it in a way that I was able to, in some way, just by my presence there, carry that burden. It's like, we are a priesthood. You don't need a singular priest to confess your sins to, but in that moment, I became a a safe place for Steve to confess, and it was in that moment that he recognized, I need God, and he accepted Jesus. And he prayed, and I, I, this is how funny, he's pretty funny. He's like, he prayed to receive Christ. I led him in a prayer. And I said, you know, there is no sinner's prayer in scripture, but the principles are clear, that we confess with our lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. There's no front-loading in the gospel. It's not about what you bring to the table. The only thing you can bring to him, Steve, is your dead body. And his body was ravaged by the cancer. So that analogy was quite real for him and he prayed he prayed after me this prayer and prayed that Jesus would come into his heart that the spirit would fill him that his sins would be forgiven and that he would be a new creation but then after it finished he goes yeah I I, I need to I need to pray that again in my own words now is that okay I'm like absolutely And he, he prayed himself in his own words and it was such a beautiful and pure prayer it was literally just Jesus I'm scared Help me, save me. And he wasn't at that moment praying that Jesus would save him from physical death. He was praying that Jesus would save him. Like the thief on the cross who had nowhere to go but to the grave and he says, Lord, remember me today when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus immediately says, assuredly, you will be with me in paradise. After Steve finished praying, I go, "I go, Steve, that's, that's it. You were praying, he goes, was I praying or was I playing? That was his response to me. I still don't know. I said, I think you were praying. And then he laughed. He goes, I think so too. He actually stopped talking that day. He lost his ability to talk. He went into hospice the next day and he died on Christmas Eve with his father standing above him. His father is a devout believer. And he said, he came, his father told me at the memorial, Josh, Steve was so scared of death but I think it was because he, was, he, he knew his relationship with God wasn't right. And right before he died, he actually opened his eyes and he looked into my eyes as he passed and I saw peace. And I think that this is the beauty of confession. Robert Farrar Capone actually has an incredible uh, definition of confession in his book, Kingdom, Grace and Judgment. And I'm gonna put it up on the screen um, for you. It says, confession is not the admission of a mistake which, thank God, in our better nature, we have finally recognized and corrected. Rather, it is the admission that we're dead in our sins, that we have no power of ourselves either to save ourselves or to convince anyone else that we are worth saving. It is the recognition that our whole life is finally and forever, I love this, out of our hands and that if we ever live again, our life will be entirely the gift of some gracious other. What Capone is getting at is the very words that, that we are told, the most known scripture in, in the Bible, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, doesn't say whoever works for him, whoever proves to him their value, It says, no, whoever believes in him, whoever grabs a hold of him and trusts in the gift that he has extended to us shall not perish but have everlasting life. And I love the verse that we don't know as well as the following verse, verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. One of the reasons that confession is so difficult is because to confess that we are lost requires a release of control, that we're powerless to save ourselves. Uh, Gerard um, uh, Ford, or excuse me, Gerhard Ford, in his book, How to Be a Theologian of the Cross, he loved to use the language of of addiction or the kind of the AA, the 12-step kind of language to help people understand what it is they're bringing to God. And he says this, there is no cure for the addict on his own. In theological terms, we must confess that we are addicted to sin, addicted to self, whatever form that may take, pious or impious. The remedy for curing desire does not lie in satisfying it, but extinguishing it. The cross does the extinguishing. The cross is the death of sin and the sinner. The cross does the bottoming out. The cross is the intervention. For resurrection to happen, there must first be a death. This is what I always call the good death. It's dying to the lie of what God never intended for you to be so that you can come alive in the resurrection life of Jesus. For resurrection to happen, there must first be a death. The truth must be heard and confessed. Then there is hope. A new life can begin. With it, a new sense of self worth can blossom. For in the end, we arrive, as we shall see, at the love of a God who creates anew out of nothing. So we begin the journey. God creates out of the nothingness of our brokenness new life only as we recognize we cannot save ourselves. This was the very word of my father, Alexander, when I shared the gospel with him. And he looked at me and he said, I believe that Jesus is the son of God. I believe that he died for my sins, but I cannot put my trust in him. And I'm like, why, dad? How can you say that and say no to putting your trust in him? He goes, I am not willing to surrender. And I said, dad, you can't walk. You're going to the bathroom in your pants. You haven't showered in over a month. You drink a fifth of vodka plus a day. You, drink, you smoke two packs of cigarettes with an oxygen tube in your nose, which could blow me up, by the way. You're alone in a trailer, and you're going to die without question within the next couple of years. What do you think you have to surrender or that God is asking you to surrender? And when my dad began, it was, it was literally just this, this belief, this fundamental belief that he still had some kind of control. But he had no control. He was a slave to his own sin. And I said, what do you think God wants you to do? You think he wants you to give up your cigarettes or your alcohol? Listen, dad, I am positive that... That does not matter in the least. In fact, I'm pretty sure if you gave up your alcohol right now, it would kill you immediately. I wouldn't even worry about that because you're not going to help anybody. You're stuck in a trailer, you can't even walk. So if you're worried about usefulness, there's zero usefulness. I'm just trying to help you out by helping you understand that you've got nothing to offer God, He has everything to offer you. And you just have to say yes. And He goes, I just don't know if I can, son. And I remember leaving to fly home and it's February and it's dark all day long and it was snowy and this unbelievable sadness. And I felt overwhelmed with guilt and grief myself because I felt like I was leaving a child in the woods to be devoured um, because he's incapable of caring for himself. But the Lord is amazing in that he's kept Alexander White alive. And my dad did finally pray to receive Christ. Although he likes to say he's not sure if it's stuck. (laughs) Uh, but I think that this is the the reality of how difficult confession is is that we we have the wrong idea we think it's about confessing this or that thing surrendering this or that thing Jesus doesn't want this or that thing he doesn't want he 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 doesn't want just your problems he doesn't want just your gifts he just wants you he just wants you to give yourself to him and this is why we have to understand that the cross is the center because it has a double meaning for us. It, it, the son's death is both our fault as well as our benefit. For Jesus on the cross dies in the place that we deserve he takes the judgment of humanity into himself and he is both the judge and the judge he dies for both the victim and the victimizer and this is why capone's statement is so good that we are dead in our sins and unless there's an intervention we're lost which brings me to the first part of first john chapter one verses five through six i want to just start with saying confession requires naked honesty this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. I want to just begin by saying that confession is the opposite of hiding. The nature of, of human existence is that we are masters of Hiding. If we go back to the garden, the, that primordial word that flows out of the garden. You remember when the serpent tempts our first parents. It, it, what, is, what are we told? It says, did God really say? There was a consistent questioning of God's authority over humanity's life. And, and Eve, in, in listening to the serpent, sees that the fruit that she was told not to eat was good and pleasurable. And, and, she's, and the serpent lies to her and says, you will be like God. Did God really say that? And as she ate, and Adam ate, it wasn't that there was magic in the fruit. The symbolism is powerful. It's that in that moment, they were choosing for themselves to define what is right and what is wrong. And immediately separation came in. We, we, call, this the, we call this the fall. Uh, we talk about it in terms of original sin. But I like what uh, um, P.T. Forces said no matter how original sin is, grace is more original still. But all I know is that the moment sin entered, hiding in relational disconnect began. This is where we began to hide our problems from one another, to present a false reality, we often try to present to the world the ideal that we ourselves cannot live, nor will we ever be able to live. And this is what's problematic about the language of John is John uses such simple language that we can read into it something that he is not trying to say. Because when you read a word like this, when you read, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, what do you think that means? Because if you think about that, what I was always taught is that light is moral perfection. And so we can't walk with God unless we are also morally perfect. And to walk in the light means that we're moral now. But I don't believe that's what the text is saying. The walking in the light is not us not sinning any longer. Walking in the light is allowing the one who is sinless, Jesus himself, to continually reveal our brokenness. And, and it's about a living in a continual pattern of looking to the cross and confessing our brokenness and casting ourselves in total dependence upon Jesus. And it's not just enough to confess to God because the, the, the commandments hinge upon this. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Therefore, whatever relationship we have with God is also defined by our love with one another. This is why I always push back against that interior mysticism that's become so prominent right now in the church, which is this desire to discover oneself by looking inward. I mean, that's a very Gnostic idea. It's a very New Age idea that God is within you. And you just have to look within. I don't know about you, but whenever I take too much time looking within, I'm like what am I even looking at? What a disaster in here. My wife tells me all the time, it is not good for you to spend too much time in your head. I would argue it's not good for anyone to try to spend too much time in my head. Uh, What I have found is that my sanity and my Savior comes into play when I begin to look outward toward you. It was... uh, in Martin Buber's um, I and Thou, he's, his whole, the whole premise of that book is that one cannot look into the face of God and look away from the other. That it is when we live life in community with one another When we come into the light, it is our willingness. This is a deeper look. It's not just the idea that we need to be together, but it's about our willingness to be honest about who we are and honest about our brokenness because our ability to live differently demands our willingness to walk in the light and to recognize what we are apart from Jesus. (laughs) I read a great quote today. B.F. Skinner once said, the only difference between men and rats is that rats learn from their mistakes. (laughs) And what that means is that you and I have unfortunately a tendency to go back to that position of the garden. And like our first parents, we're hiding in shame, aware of our own nakedness. And so what do we do? We try to cover it with a whole bunch of illusions. And often, the most exhausting aspect of existence is attempts to fulfill the illusion of what we can never become. And what we have in the garden is that it is God who is walking in the cool of the day right toward our parents in hiding. And here's what, why confession is so essential in the church today and why it is so compelling to the world outside is because we live in an age of victimization and scapegoating. The scapegoat mechanism is the, is the, is the ultimate reality. It's what Rene Girard said, that the whole universe is full of scapegoats. And, and it goes back to the garden. When God says, who told you to eat of the fruit? And what does Adam say? It was the woman whom you gave me. It's her fault. And then what does the woman say? It was the serpent who deceived me. It's interesting. The serpent says nothing. He's like, yep, I did. <laughs> he's the only stinking one in the story besides God that's honest. Because he's a deceiver. He's like, that's what I do. That's what I do, right? <laughs> but humanity, we are masterful at blaming our family, our parents, our friends, our spouses, our children, our coworkers, political groups—it's always somebody else's fault, right? For the problems that we are experiencing in our culture. One of the most disheartening aspects of church during COVID and all the racial tension and the election was watching families within the church—parents who were more conservative and tended to vote Republican, and then the young kids that live in Portland that tend to vote for, um, vote more Democratic, and it's like, the kids are like, I think my parents are Nazis, and then the parents are like, I think my kids are, are maybe Antifa, <laughs> and like, possibly, but it doesn't matter, <laughs> it doesn't matter, because Jesus died for everybody and all of us suck. That's the that's the thing I want to give you as a gift today. You are the worst. And I love you. <laughs> but this is the, the truth of the gospel. It's the, it's the power of this, this picture is that we are powerless. Why does AA work? Why, is, why do I always use that as the picture of how the church should actually function? Because the first step in the 12-step program is actually a beautiful step. It's recognizing you're powerless. You're powerless. You can't actually, you can't actually fix yourself without help. There needs to be an intervention. It's what Gerhard Ford said. There needs to be a bottoming out. And in spiritual terms, we need to understand that sin, you know, there's constant conversation around is there free will? Do we have free will? And what I would say is that we have freedom. (laughs) We have limited freedom. Because sin has bound us in such a way that it is impossible for humanity to reach God in their own effort. Now there are, particular theological um, uh, perspectives that take the 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 lack of freedom to extremes in a way that is unhelpful uh, turning human existence into simply this sort of mechanical determinism that you everything you do is what God designed you to do but man I'm telling you right now that is deeply problematic because the moment you make God responsible for everything that happens is the moment you make God responsible for sin. And this passage right here tells us that's not possible. The God is light and in him is no darkness at all. But we are bound by sin. Jesus says whoever sins is a slave to sin. And sin, I think it's always important for us to define what sin is. And I always refer to it as a rebellion against God's rule. Like our first parents, we want to define for ourselves what is right and wrong. But it's also a rejection of his love. It's a rejection of his grace. Because God from Genesis all the way to Revelation is consistently pursuing humanity and their brokenness. I like actually how Frederick Buechner defines sin. He says, sin is centrifugal. It tends to push everything out toward the periphery until only the core is left. Eventually, even the core itself will break apart until nothing is left. Sin is whatever we do or do not do that pushes God and others away, that widens the gap between us and them and also the gap within ourselves. Sin leaves us with a vertical disconnect, a horizontal disconnect, as well as an inward disconnect. Original sin means we originate out of a sinful world which taints us from the word go. It was Chesterton who said, the greatest argument against Christianity, or excuse me, the greatest argument for Christianity is sin. He said the greatest argument against Christianity is Christians. What does he mean by that? He's not just being clever, he's actually speaking an incredible truth. Because sin is the reality of all people, Christians, like everyone else, are sinners, which then causes the world to say, you're a bunch of hypocrites. And they wouldn't say that if we would say, We are sinners. We're broken. And if people came in and saw us coming into the light, which is not us being perfect, but it's us being, I am broken, and I'm not afraid to confess that I'm broken. I'm not afraid to come into the light because I know that these people in this place are a safe community by which we all recognize that without Jesus, we are lost. And therefore, we are all on the same playing field. We don't need to live in guilt and shame anymore because God already knows that we are failures without him. And that is why he has moved into the world's dilemma because he, for whatever reason, the divine mystery, the sacred romance is that he is not content to exist without you. That on your worst day, he's crazy about you. And when we actually live as a people that recognize we are sinners that have been saved by a God who is relentlessly pushing into our lives, calling us into the light and saying I know you're broken your power comes from your continual confession your fellowship with me and with one another comes from your willingness to just confess that you are broken this is something that we as a staff we recognize that the church goes as the leadership goes and we've been really practicing this as a staff as elders of just confessing our brokenness confessing the things that we look at that we ought not to the things that we do that we ought not to the ways that we hurt one another all of these things if we bring it out into the light it loses its power forgiveness is found and that's actually where we begin to overcome the things that keep us bound I said last week that the thing that is most disturbing to me is the reason that Christian leaders keep falling. And I mean, it's again and again and again. Did you guys just hear uh, a major case just brought against the founder of Hillsong because he was hiding his father's sin? Serious sin, criminal sin. He hid it. He protected his father who had engaged in in child, like, pedophilia. He hid it, he buried it, and the government is bringing a case against him right now for it. Christians can't afford to hide their sin, and we can't afford to pass judgment on people acting like we don't have sin. (laughs) And see, the more you come into the light, the more you come to the foot of the cross, you recognize that the difference between you and the worst person you can think of is pretty slim. And that you're saved exactly the same way, by God's intervention into our reality. So I always say that a theology of everyday life depends on a unfree will. If the will is free, then we don't need someone to save us. We just need a helper, not a savior. It's Paul words. It's not talking about freedom and what we do with our lives and who we marry and where we work. I'm talking about the freedom to reach God. That, my friends, we are bound and we are are impotent in our ability to get to God in our own efforts. Our brokenness is a problem that cannot be denied, and it cannot be buried, and it cannot be hidden, and I refuse to pastor a church by which I present to you some sort of ideal that I myself can't keep, nor do I want to be in a community that isn't comfortable saying, we suck, we need Jesus, because that is what's compelling to the world. We should, we should just do that as a t-shirt. <laughs> We, I suck, I need Jesus. That, I always, I've seen t-shirts that say, I really love Jesus and that, that turns heads, but I suck, I need Jesus is pretty funny. That's like pretty awesome. <laughs> Secondly, confession fosters fellowship through forgiveness. It requires a naked honesty. Coming into the light is not you being perfect. It's you being, being willing to allow God to by his spirit to shine in upon our brokenness and then the willingness to do something about it, to confess it to God and to confess it to your brothers and sisters. This is the power of AA is we come into a circle, you say, hi, my name's Josh, I'm an alcoholic. It's been, you know, 322 days since I had my last drink. It's the confession of, of the powerlessness in the context of a safe community that is not judging you, that actually one begins to overcome the very thing that you're confessing. It's powerful. That's why I always say we're saints, but all a saint is is a sinner that's forgiven. That's it. A saint isn't someone that's arrived. There is no arrival on this side of eternity, by the way, friends. It's just following Jesus. And if you're questioning my theology here, I would would argue take a look at the Gospels and tell me anywhere where the disciples seem to be in control of what's happening in their lives or 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 talk to me about their unbelievable insight and their wisdom and their ability to avoid sin. And what you'll see is that the disciples were absolute losers and failures, the entire ministry of Jesus. It wasn't until they became filled with the Holy Spirit that they actually were even empowered to do the work of the ministry. And that came after Pentecost. Peter, who preaches the most powerful sermon where 3,000 people come to faith, what? What did he do just, you know, not that long before, a month before or so? He was denying Jesus three times, but boasting of his ability to follow Jesus wherever he went and that he would die for him. And yet Jesus says, You're not going to die for me. You're all talk. But it's okay, Peter, because I love you and I've got you covered. That's exactly why I came. But did Peter stop sinning after he was filled with the Holy Spirit? Because I'm pretty sure that Paul says in the book of Galatians, I spoke to Peter to his face for he was playing the hypocrite just like the rest of them. Oh, so sinless perfection is not a reality. (laughs) Wesley was a little wrong on that. It's hard for us to accept this look at this fosters fellowship through forgiveness but if we walk in the light as he is in the light we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us by the way the truth is not information it's not an ideological grid it's Christ himself for Jesus said I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The truth for us is relationship with the living God that produces in us a new reality by which we now can enter into relationship with one another. The truth for us is the gospel. We're not presenting to the world a moral code. We're not giving to the people religious pills i 've been reading through a book by James Ferrar Capone on on the foolishness of preaching, and he said the preacher 's number one responsibility is to be a rebellious child and steal people 's religious pills, um, pills from them and I really love that picture is that we we constantly fall into the trappings of 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 turning our Christian life into a list of, I don't do this, I do this, don't do this, do this. That was my childhood experience with Christianity. I never heard about grace, and therefore I never met Jesus. What I walked away with from the church was, it's just a bunch of people telling me what not to do, but they're not telling me why I shouldn't do it. They're not offering me anything that would make me not want to do those things. And all the things they're telling me not to do are actually quite fun. Why do you think people sin? It's not because it's lame, it's because it's fun. The problem is, is that it wreaks havoc on our lives. Nobody's gonna say that, that drugs aren't fun until they're not. <laughs> All these things that, that the church would say don't do, but they didn't say give your life to Jesus because you're always going to have the inclination to turn back to this thing that will break your heart and break others' hearts. He loves you. He has done something about the sin and your freedom lies in a dependence upon him. Confession fosters fellowship through forgiveness and this is the power. It says Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin and all generally means what in scripture? All. What it means is that Jesus didn't just die. We tend to define sin by the little things we do wrong. What we need to recognize is what Jesus addressed is the sin nature. What he killed on the cross was the power of sin. We continue to sin, but it shall not have power over us any longer because a new power has come into us through our faith in Christ. And the power of the gospel comes into play as we confess. This is why I always say that There's a, a giant movement toward solitude and silence again. And I'm like, solitude and silence may be good in small doses. And it's true that we need to be slow to speak and quick to listen. But we are also told in scripture that we are to be quick to confess. And silence and solitude does no one any good if sin is hidden. Because sin hidden actually hides God from us, and it kills our ability to be in real fellowship with one another. But sin confessed actually is the place by which Jesus meets us the most powerfully. You know, it's the same picture with death. It's, we're told that death has been conquered on the cross, and that Jesus, because he tasted death, but death could not keep him. That's why we hold so tenaciously to the resurrection, is that on the third day he raised from the dead that that death now, it says, oh death, where is your sting? That death, it becomes literally the means by which we are ushered into more life. The same principle is applied to sin. Sin no longer separates us from God. When it is confessed, it actually becomes the place where we have communion with God. That's why Jesus came. I experienced this powerfully, I have a dear friend who was arrested actually in a um, prostitution sting. And his wife of 35 years had no idea that he had had essentially 35 years of unbelievable duplicity, hidden sin, hidden, hidden world of just sexual addiction. And after he was arrested, very very wealthy very powerful it made it made the news he was on i mean big hedge fund guy uh, and he him and his wife now go around and to share their story cuz it's so powerful and beautiful but after he got arrested he at first he said i just was trying to i was angry and i just wanted to figure out how to get out of it and i tried to downplay it I downplayed the sin, and I pretended like it was nothing really going on, that I was actually just going for a massage. It was all confusion. But soon as the news got out and the hedge fund began to collapse, I mean, literally within a couple of days, he was going to tell his mother what had happened before she saw it on the news, and he had a panic attack and collapsed onto the ground. He was taken back to his house, and while he was sitting, uh, sitting in, his, in a chair, he said, He goes, it was the only time in my life I've experienced what I would call like a supernatural moment. And he said, I had, it was like a deck of cards that were just like floating in front of me and each one was showing me all the way back to when I was 12 years old with my brother looking at a dirty magazine in an alley and then it moved through everything I had done. It was like all of it. And then all of a sudden the deck of cards just flew out the window and I felt the Holy Spirit say, enough. And he he felt this overwhelming sense of forgiveness and he confessed it. And he said the horrifying thing was he felt so much joy at the release and the confession. And at the same time, the unbelievable weight of what he had just put his family through. Um, And he was like, I didn't know what to do. I felt like I was going to split in half. I felt so alive and I'm, I just got saved, I think. And, just the willingness, he's like, I couldn't not tell my wife anything she wanted to know. I just would tell her. And then the Lord put on her heart, you know enough, nail it to the cross. Don't ask him another thing. And she came, she came home the next day and made him all of his favorite meals, showing him what grace is. It is the one way love of God that comes to us, not because we deserve it, but because God loves us and meets us in our brokenness and the power of the confession actually led to a real freedom from the sexual sin from the alcoholism that he was dealing with and he was a new man a new reality had set in and I think that this is the thing is that confession fosters fellowship through this forgiveness that that this is what we want How often we want Jesus to forgive us because we cannot live any longer with our guilt, but we have forgotten that Jesus has forgiven us because he is not content to live without us. And I think, that, and this is the rub, is that we want a clear conscience and Jesus desires us. It's hard to admit that we despise anything that threatens our autonomy and Jesus despises anything that robs him of you, which is your sin. So often our confession isn't built upon the desire to have real intimacy with Christ, but it's just the deep desire to get rid of the guilt. But what God wants you to do is give yourself to him because he has already dealt with the guilt and shame and what he wants is relationship, right? Relationship. It's not about you fixing this or that problem. It's about a total surrender of self. And the forgiveness that we are experiencing is a once and for all forgiveness that Jesus has accomplished on the cross. The reason we continue to confess sins if our sins have already been forgiven is to remind ourselves of how desperately we need him. And to remind ourselves to not go back into hiding because hiding is the natural default setting of the human heart. We're always replaying the archetypal stories of the garden. We're always going back into a place of hiding and shame. And Jesus is constantly like the father walking in the garden saying, come out, come be with me. Walk with me. He has walked toward us. He has changed everything. Which brings me to the close. Confession creates freedom and humility. Says if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice that once again, all sin, all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. You guys, diminishment is another way of saying it wasn't really sin. How easy it is to diminish the reality that sin creates enslavement if it's a rebellion against God's rule, think about how much he's... Because we often begin to compare sin. We think of sin, well, I'm not a junkie. Or I'm not, you know, I'm, I've never been with a prostitute. Or, I, you know, I don't have a sexual addiction. But listen, your sin could be your love of moralism. Your sin can be thinking that because you're in the pew and you know your Bible better than the people sitting around you, that you somehow have arrived no greater sin i would argue and the most dangerous kind of sin is religious sin a religious zeal that one thinks they're good with god because they are more disciplined in their ability at hiding that they have begun to believe they do certain, you know why religion is so effective is because it satisfies the deep need for something bigger than ourselves but when it doesn't lead to a surrender to jesus it actually is one of the most dangerous kinds of sin Nothing is more dangerous than being in a pew thinking you're all right with God when all along you don't know him and he doesn't know you. And the most terrifying words that we could ever hear from the lips of Jesus is what he spoke in Matthew 7. And many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this or that in your name? And he will say, away from me, I never knew you. And that's why we can't come to Christ and, and say, Lord, you know, thank, thank God I'm not a sinner like that person. That's not a, I promise you, that's a really dangerous game to play. But if we can accept the fact that you cannot insult a corpse and that we are nothing and that Jesus is everything and the only thing we have the ability to bring him is our dead bodies, then we can celebrate the fact that the good news is that Jesus is in the business of bringing dead things alive. Maybe we should be slow to speak. Maybe it's also true that we should be quick to confess because what I would argue is this, sin leaves the body, salvation enters the soul, and witness is achieved through the lips. Jesus said, what you have heard in secret, confess from the mountaintops. Literally, we confess our sin and it's, it's how we find freedom from it because we're reminded that it has no power over us we confess Jesus is Lord which reminds us again and again that I am not the ruler of my life that I have died and been buried with him and have been resurrected in this life we confess him to a lost world because it is through our witness that people come to hear The fact that there is a God who is not content to live without them. We are literally the living conduits by which the message of the gospel is proclaimed. The Holy Spirit is a missionary spirit who wants to work through us to draw lost people into the relationship that we ourselves have experienced. But if we aren't experiencing the relationship, how compelling is that witness? And maybe the reason we don't witness is because we're not actually that compelled by the relationship. Do you believe the thing that you confess? Do you know the one who died for you? I think that this is the power of the gospel, is that the world is not compelled by our pretense or our silence, but by our radical vulnerability, i.e. our honesty about sin and our loving witness to the king. I have been deeply troubled um, that people are not necessarily offended by us anymore as the church because not because we've learned how to really love people well it's because we've learned how to hide the gospel from our realities where we've learned how to live in the world without actually anyone knowing that we know Jesus that that's the best way to live out the gospel is to be as secretive about it we're like a new secret society we're like the illuminati Nobody knows what it's about and nobody cares. <laughs> That's not what we ought to be. The Christians were hated in, in the Roman Empire because they were known for their love for one another and their care for one another and their willingness to get their hands dirty and care for people that were viewed as not even worthy of, of time or energy. They were known for elevating women. Uh, in a time where women were completely oppressed. They were known for loving and setting free slaves. They were known for caring for people that were sick and dying. All of these things were the things that actually created the anathema that was Christianity. And they refused to call the emperor Lord because Jesus alone was Lord. And I think that this is where the gospel brings transformation. I close with this Verse. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the the day drawing near. You guys, the reason we've gone to a single service because I believe God wants to do something radical in our city. I believe he wants to do something radical in our midst. And I think that he is calling us to a new vulnerability, a new honesty before God and one another that we can truly experience the power of the Holy Spirit transforming our lives from the inside out, that we would know Jesus and that we would be unashamed. I want us to get to the place where we can actually say with the Apostle Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And when you know what you've been saved from, it's hard not to be like Will Ferrell and Elf I'm in love and I don't care who knows. I'm in love and I don't care who knows. Jesus loves you guys so much. And he is safe and dangerous because he will turn your life upside down. And he is a consuming fire and his desire is to burn away everything that is unworthy of him so that you can be in communion with him. He hates your sin because it robs him of what he loves, which is you. And this is why we must learn to confess to God and to confess to one another so that we can not only have fellowship with him, but fellowship with one another. Let's have real relationships. Let's be radically vulnerable. Let's be a place that it is safe for people to come in in their brokenness and meet the living Christ, amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gospel and its ability to bring transformation to our lives. I thank you for this season that we are in, a door of hope, and I do pray right now that we would recognize that what makes the gospel so powerful is that all the religions of the world give us a list of things to do to prove our worth to a God that cannot save. But the gospel is, sits in a completely different category altogether. For it is never driven by what we do for you. It is defined by what you have already done for us. That God entered into the human dilemma. That Lord, at the fall, you could have just destroyed the world and started over. But relationship requires freedom and freedom always involves risk. And our freedom is a fragile thing. It is easy for us, Lord, to turn back to the slavery that you have set us free from. It's easy for us to turn back to being rulers of our own life instead of humbling ourselves before you, our king. Lord, that's what we want. We want to just simply humble ourselves before you and say thank you for what you've done for us. Jesus, you love us with an everlasting love. And so we just call upon you as your word says that whoever confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised Him from the dead shall be saved as we recognize that you, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. That there may be lots of things that we don't understand, but I do believe that the spirit reveals the truth of who you are. That we apprehend long before we comprehend. That there is a mystery in your saving work. And so Lord, I just pray that you would be drawing people to yourself right now and that they would recognize that you indeed are everything that you said you are. That you really did enter into the world of sin and take it into yourself. That you conquered death and the dominions of darkness and sin itself on the cross of Calvary. And that you rose from the dead after three days, revealing yourself to your followers and ascended to the right hand of the Father where you have sent your spirit to dwell in those that put their faith in you so that we can be your witnesses until you return. And so we proclaim together as a church and as a community that is committed to confession, Jesus is Lord. Let's say that together, guys. Jesus is Lord. Amen.